With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is lead analyst Logan Motoshami to talk about the Fed rate hike, the new home sales report, and demographics. We're doing things a little bit differently today. We have a mini segment after our normal show about HousingWire Annual that you won't want to miss, so be sure to stick around to hear more about that. Logan, welcome to the podcast. It is wonderful to be here, Sarah, on Fed Day. Great to have you, Logan. We just did a live Instagram about this very topic, right? Right as Powell was speaking, had a lot of people join. And one of the biggest questions was, is this rate hike already baked in? And is there another one coming? By the way, trying to do an Instagram live and talk about the Fed while listening to Powell and you can't look at the TV is very difficult. Okay, that's the first time I try to do that with peripheral vision. The old basketball coach in me, I used to tell the kids, you know, you man and ball, man and ball. So, you know, the, the interesting aspect of this Fed meeting is Powell. I don't know if he meant to say this, but he did. We have disinflationary factors without a hit to labor. So what is our talking point for this whole time is that the uh, Federal Reserve doesn't need to create a job loss recession. Uh, a history of pandemics has shown that disinflation factors are coming. So I think to me, that was a key factor because they're they're talking about this now. They're like, hey, you know what? Inflation's falling and we haven't we don't need to lose jobs. That was the big concern of mine with the Fed is that they don't see, you know, inflation getting better, uh, even though it is getting better. We're all we all read the same data and the labor market is tight. I think the people that I've always had the biggest problem with are those who adamantly say we need a 1970s Fed to fight to kill the economy, to kill inflation. We need seven and a half percent unemployment rates for two years, or, you know, stuff like that. Okay, baby boomers, it's time to go away, you know. So, um, and and now we've seen it because we've seen a labor market still stay tight in, in relative terms going back five decades, and disinflation factors. Shocked? No, not shocked at all. So I think to me it's. There, there are some positive things with this Fed talk, but they also kind of admitted that they lied um, uh, in the sense to where uh, the Federal Reserve wanted not to be uh, so aggressive last year. They talked about, well, we just want three, six, 12-month core PCE to be uh, uh, where the Fed funds rate at. That was a lie. We, we, we talked about this in a podcast. Uh, they want you know real yields to be above where the uh, Fed funds rate is. And that is where, okay, now we're in restrictive territory now. You know, that's another thing talked about. So in that context, uh, that's the, uh, the market is somewhat looking at it maybe slightly dovish because that acknowledges that you don't need a 1970s inflation. That means that we should be a little bit more mindful of the bad cops at this point, um, the, the Fed members who are talking about we need more rate hikes, more rate hikes, uh, uh, grow, growth, that any kind of growth is inflationary and that's bad. And uh, uh, Powell talked about that. You know, that's the, the, we don't want to really push back on, you know, any, any kind of growth is being bad. So these are good, positive things at this stage 
to hear about uh, that we we don't have to worry about them freaking out every time. But most likely, there's four or five Fed members that are going to freak out every week, and we're going to hit, we're going to see them, and we're going to make fun of them like we always do. But the, I think the core <laughs> concept that the disinflation has happened without the hit to labor that is good, right? Because okay, that so- means. So break that down for me, okay? I'm not an economist. Uh, so disinflationary factors, what does that mean? What is he talking about? That means that the growth rate of inflation is falling noticeably without jobs being lost. And that was the whole, the argument has been that you can't have inflation come down when the labor market is this tight. Okay, some of us have say, no, inflation is going to fall down. It's a global pandemic. Now he talked about disinflation factors, the growth rate of inflation falling with the job market being tight. The, 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 other, the other concern or what I call bearish stock traders in America, they always say, oh, wages are spiraling out of control. The Fed has to raise rates, raise rates, raise. I'm shorting the market. I need the market to crash. You know, you know no, you don't need that. Uh, uh, as you can see, I'm not very fond of stock traders. But in this context, the fact that Powell said that means that they're they're having this discussion, and this is a good thing because the last thing you want are baby boomers in 1970 stock. Nothing good happens. You know how I talk about teenager level for housing is not a good thing. Nothing good happens when baby boomers talk about 1970s inflation. So that's that's not a positive, and that that to me was the was the big takeaway that they actually have seen disinflation factors without a hit to labor, and that's been our main talking point here at uh, Housing Wire for some time. You don't need to kill it, right? You don't need to just land the plane. Okay. So he also, uh, you mentioned just briefly that he talked about restrictive, right? Like restrictive what? Yeah. I I think to me, they want to be in a restrictive policy phase for a longer period. So right now that the fact that the inflation has fallen down, let's just keep this simple. Let's say core PCE is at four and a half percent the Fed funds rates at five and a half percent. That's a one percent spread. So the Fed funds rate is above where inflation is. Real yields, right? You know. So I think now they should have just said this last year. It, all the confusion would have been would have been stopped, but they they didn't. Uh, and now they believe now they're in restrictive policy. They they might quiver about you know are we there long enough or we're we not. But at least now we know the full set game plan. So. Uh, I think now we could officially say like all the 1970s fear talk should kind of start moving aside because uh, job openings are uh, still near 10 million. Jobless claims are still under 300,000. Wage growth is slowing down and they don't seem to be too freaked out. They even brought up Barbie, you know, and they brought up Taylor Swift. Uh, and you know, people spending money going to see Barbie and Taylor Swift—that's not—that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's that's good, right? The the, the fear is, you know, when Neil Kashkari came on CNBC, it's like, oh my god, six percent mortgage rates. People are buying homes, they're having sex again. That's not good. You you got we got to get off of this. That's just this is the United States of America. We, that we're not Europe, right? We can't act like a bunch of soft crybabies out here. Okay, so. Uh, people are going to live their lives. They're going to do things and you don't have to freak out every time it happens. Well, you know, we had that huge opening weekend for Barbie and Oppenheimer and uh, a lot of things were sold out. So we might see another great weekend again, you know, seeing people spend money that they don't have to do people looking for a good time. Taylor Swift, that's not cheap. So if people have money for Taylor Swift, that is a very good sign. Well, I, I, I think the, the, the interesting thing with a Taylor Swift uh, model is that wherever she goes, you could see a, a, a little boom in the local economy, 
right? Uh, people got to go to hotels, they got to buy food, they, you know, you know, so, so these things are uh, r- rolling towards, you know, you get to see the impact uh, of this. So again, 156 million people are working, right? So uh, um, it's not like, this is not like a third world country, like some people think. So uh, people spend every single day, consume goods and services. You know, that's one of the reasons why inflation never becomes deflationary, right? We rarely have deflationary uh, uh, data lines here in America, just because so many people are working and so many people spend, they buy gasoline, they buy food, they buy clothes, stuff like that. It's the growth rate that's always the concern. And uh, uh, inflation's always growing. They just want it to be down at 2%. That's just a made up number by them. And uh, we just have to take it at this point. And again, it's, it's always about jobless claims for me. Uh, and jobless claims data has not broken. The reason I have that 323,000 level there for jobless claims, if you take j- the unemployment rate, our demographics, job openings, for us to get to that level, that would be meaningful. You could all see it's not that easy to get up there to 323,000. Okay. So, uh, uh, but it, it is good to see that the first word of disinflation factors happening without a hit to labor. I mean, that's, I mean, we have sat here for a very long time and talked about this endure. The Fed has to endure. They really didn't need to hike the last three times. They didn't need to hike today. But at least now we're starting to get a framework that we don't have to worry about the baby boomer 1970 premise because nothing nothing good happens with that. That means you you hardcore recession and you're 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 afraid of any kind of recovery because it could create inflation. So that that's a positive. So, you know, the the question that everybody in our audience wants to know is how does this translate to mortgage rates? Is it already baked in? And also, you know, we have had a lot of questions, not just today on our um, Instagram live, but over the last couple of weeks, you know, people message us, they email us, uh, they put comments in and they're like, why is the spread so wide between the 30 year fixed and and the 10 year yield because you always say like they're they're together they're supposed to be doing the slow dance and we've just had this really big widening and people are really wondering why is that because that does have a big effect on on mortgage rates so the spreads traditionally if you go back decades when the market is stressed um when we're in a recession or heading toward one that's when the spreads get bad the only two times in history right now that the spreads were worse than they are today was 1980 and 1982. Both times we're in a recession. We saw the spreads get worse going into COVID. We saw the spreads get worse in the great financial crisis. The market has been stressed for a while because it naturally believes we're going into a recession. They have priced in rate cuts or whatever, and nothing has happened. Uh, but the spreads were getting a little bit better at the start of the year. And then the banking crisis happened. Um, so the question I think going out is, do we now, do we have more damage that needs to happen with the spreads? Because usually it gets bad when the recession is starting, but that's already kind of taken its course. So a, a, a positive way of thinking about this is that we've already priced the worst you possibly can. The disinflation factors are already in, right? And the Fed cries uncle, the spreads should get better. Uh, we saw a glimpse of that at the start of the year. And then the banking crisis reverted that uh, to the opposite way. So uh, that's the thing. But again, still, the 10-year yield goes up, mortgage rates go up, the 10-year yield goes down, mortgage rates go down. That 10-year level that ten year level is more important than the spreads because there's not a real big deviation. You can have the slow dance partner be closer or wider, 
But if you go back to 1971, we do those charts for a reason. It's really why the 10-year, why was I not a lower mortgage rate person? Because I didn't believe the 10-year yield could break through 3.21%. That's why we brought Gandalf the Gray out, right? You are not going to pass. So um, I, I revolve around that more than a mortgage-backed security uh, person. So that's why I just focus my work primarily on the 10-year yield. And the 10-year yield fell uh, during the Fed meetings, not nothing too drastic, five basis points. But you know, I, I think this is in in some ways it's constructive, uh, just regard to me because my always fear is the 1970s fear, the 1970s fear, because when the 1970s comes, if you're still thinking that you're any kind of good data, you start to freak out, you know, because rent inflation kept on taking off higher. We don't have that kind of marketplace anymore, you know, so we just have to move away. So. Clarification there. You don't have a fear of 1970s inflation. You have a fear of people who fear the 1970s inflation, right? I mean, you're the one who's calling nothing. Them out. When you have baby boomers at the Federal Reserve, okay, <laughs> and they're talking about 1970s inflation, nothing good happens. Why? Because that means you have to jack up rates so much higher and keep them higher for a very long period of time. Uh, even if the economy is getting worse, it doesn't matter because you need to destroy inflation because the seventies were terrible, right? And we just don't have that because it's already we're already here. The disinflation factors happen, right? We we are here today, and Powell said, "Well, we saw disinflationary factors without a hit to the labor." Hello, that's what we, that's what we've been talking about for some time. Uh, so uh, hopefully we just get into that conversation. Uh, there's going to be bad Fed, you know, good cop, bad cop. Sarah's a bad cop. I'm the good cop, right? Sarah's going to say wait, crazy things like a there's second. a mortgage rate. Sarah's going to say crazy things like there's a mortgage rate lockdown, and I'm going to say no. It, lower rates doesn't create more inventory. So in this case, we're going to have some Fed members who are going to go Waller and President Logan. Those two, those two are going to be our Fed people. They're going to say no, hike more hikes, more hikes, bad, bad. So uh, again, if when jobless claims break, when they do, a lot of this changes. That's why I'm not a Fed pivot person. Um, and usually the people who aren't fed pivot person are anti-central bank people and they just want to see the world burn. So this is an odd relationship group I have right now. Uh, but my, the reason I wasn't a fed pivot person is the labor data, right? The labor data breaking now is different. It's not like we saw in 2008. So the structures of the demographics of America are different. The fed acknowledges as well, but you don't, you don't have to destroy the economy. So land the plane. You shouldn't just stop the rate hikes. Just say, we're just going to sit here, right? We're, just, we're not going to do anything until, you know, we see the labor market break. And it would be perfectly fine. So anything they do now, the last three times, it wouldn't have changed things much. And now you all can see why the 10-year yield channel works, right? You know, since October 27th, when we talked about the case of lower mortgage rates, four and a quarter, that could be the peak. We have not broken over or we've not broken under that 10-year yield channel. That has worked. That's that's what I've done every single year since 2015. So we're just in this range and we've had a lot of stuff happen, you know, from October all the way to July. Uh, uh, and we've still stuck in that range. It's been an incredible range, but I do have to just interject here and say, I am not the bad cop in this situation. I am not the bad guy just because I want to limit the number of charts you have. People have no idea how many charts you want to put in a story. And you see- I have to- I have to keep all you bad cops, all bad out. cops. See, look what you're, you're trying to restrict me. You want to take my charts away. Then you tell me, Logan, you have to sit calmly. You go back and forth. This is who I am. Just let the beast go unleashed, 
right? Don't let me sit here like some like some economist. We believe it really does not work rate. when I tell you to sit still. Like you, you, your energy level goes. Why do you, down. Why you, do, you do it? Why do you do it? Because unleashed slogan is the best slogan. Boring sitting economist slogan. Yes, Sarah Wheeler, I should. I'm Come just on. trying to get a good experience for our listeners so it doesn't go in and out. That does not make me the bad cop. Okay. Our listeners Moving- are fine. They'll be okay, Sarah Wheeler. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. New homes, new home sales. Tell me what we got uh, and what it means. So, of course, with all new home sales and housing starts data, it could be pretty wild. And uh, the new home sales missed estimates. We had three negative revisions. But if you look at how new home sales are moving. It's moving from the low of last year. Uh, New home sales are up 23.8% year over year. By the way, something that doesn't happen during a housing bubble crash, (laughs) new home sales up over 20%. Uh, So the trend is still in there. You know, the growth rate is to me still somewhat limited with rates up here, but uh, it really does show that the, the builders just have this very unique advantage uh, monthly supply for me is always a big thing with the with the home builders. We went from like 10.1 months to 7.4 months. We're not at the level yet to where housing permits would really start kicking. You usually need to get a, under six and a half months out there. So, uh, you know, as as our headline in our article said, only 72,000 new homes for sale. That's it, right? A country of 335 million uh, because... I think people forget when you buy a new house, you're going to contract first, right? And then you have to wait for the home to build. Now the builders have, you know, 72 housing that are available. Anybody that's got canceled on their contract, hey, anybody want a new house? Come on over. They're very effective sellers in that regard. So this is why you hardly get any active listing inventory from the new home sales sector. I mean, uh, a, a good way uh, to talk about this is, because uh, I think this is one of the more confusing things you see these people on social media talk about the most homes are ever construction ever millions of homes are coming to the market during the housing bubble crash years we never even got to 200,000 uh uh homes available for sale completed units that was the worst part of it uh we had 4 million active listings in 2007 that was the peak that was a multi-decade peak so you're not going to get too much active listing growth from this sector but what you want to see is permits grown. They won't build until they get monthly supply down and then they're they're confident of what they can do. So uh, that's why I'm always skeptical of people saying, the builders are going to give us so much inventory. No, they won't. They're going to give you a lot of homes that are going to be occupied, right, from owners. But that just goes into the whole backlog of most inventory comes from the existing home sales market. Uh, so hopefully now we've addressed that because that, that to me has been one of the more confusing things over the last 18 months. A lot of people thought millions of homes were going to come from this sector. They're not. We're at 72,000 and monthly supply has been falling. So the builders are managing their uh, supply levels very efficiently because they're good business people. They're here to make money. Why are their stocks you know, at all-time highs? You know, they're, they're, They have a lot of profit margins to work off of. Uh, so if they need to cut rates a little bit to get the product moved, they'll do it. Okay. So, you know, we are in August, I mean, July, but very close to August. What is the cyclicality of building? I live in the DFW area. You can build all year long here. Maybe you have a couple of, you know, weeks where maybe you get some ice Um, in the, in the spring, you might have to, you know, worry about the foundation if it's raining too much. Other than that, you can build all year long. But seasonality, how is that going to affect the the building permits coming down? I, 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 don't, I don't put much weight on seasonality. Of course, in the winter, there's periods of times where you can't build. Um, 
But I would I would tell everyone this: there's still a hundred thousand new homes that haven't even started construction yet. That's that's like historically very high. A uh, hundred two thousand is the all time high. So the builders have this unbelievable backlog because they took all these contracts early on during the COVID nineteen recovery, and then rates spiked up, and they had all these cancellations. So they're just winding down their uh, backlog of homes. So as long as if monthly supply is under six and a half months and new home sales are growing, they will build, right? When it's under 4.3 months, this is why I do these uh, uh, housing supply models. Boy, the builders feel really good. They go, oh God, let's just build like crazy. So they took a lot of contracts uh, in in the COVID-19 recovery. Now they're just kind of winding that down. So if people are confused, why aren't housing permits really kicking up? This is why, right? They're still working that backlog uh, and they still have 100,000 homes that are uh, haven't even started construction, which means there's no shovel on the dirt, you know? So uh, that's more than the total completed sales uh, units for sale. There's like uh, uh, 270,000 around there that that are still under construction. So they're they're working through. That's what they do. They're, it's a business. They're here to make money, not to not to solve the housing inventory problem because the existing home sales market is their competition and why the builders are doing good, that marketplace is near all-time lows, right? So they have less competition right now. Well, let's let's get into purchase apps. That's uh, you know the other forward-looking indicator that you always uh, track. So what is that telling us? Uh, and this is not much is really happening. Uh, we are absolutely flat now for the year. Uh, we have 14 positive purchase application prints. We have 14 negative, um, which means this tug of war is happening and usually revolves around rates. But uh, we had this waterfall collapse in housing demand last year, and then it stopped, right? After November 9th, that stopped. Now, November 9th, November, December, January, up to the first week of uh, February, we had three months of positive purchase application data that gave us that one big uh, giant sales print uh, in February. But after that, not much has happened. We're just back and forth, back and forth. And this is why home sales are pretty much at 21st century lows, especially if you adjust it to the workforce. So until rates go down, right, uh, and make housing more affordable, uh, certain first-time home buyers, certain other buyers are just not there. Uh, and so the housing, this is why I stress Think stabilization for existing homes. Don't think growing. Think stabilization, right? And this is why home prices are at all-time highs. Uh, that's another thing that we saw this week. Uh, uh, the Case-Shiller Index is only 1% off its all-time highs, but the FHFA, Zillow, all these home price indexes are all, all-time highs because why? Housing data stabilized. Once it's stabilized, that means you go back to the low inventory situation. And that's the easiest answer for why home prices are back at all-time highs this year. And the stabilization, really, what you mean there is like the demand. I mean, there's there's stable demand, and there's just not that many homes for sale, right? Too too many people chasing too few homes. Too few homes, of- the savagely unhealthy housing market, yes. and just and I think the the one thing uh, I think the really good question I get is that if six to seven percent mortgage rates created the biggest crash in home sales ever, why doesn't doing it now with rates staying at seven? And my answer is always the same. Our sales levels got to such a low level that we're dealing with the top of the food chain home buyer, right? So the marginal buyers are gone, but this group since 1996 has always been here, right? We've never really been able to get below 4 million and go significantly lower. And think about it. We have 156 million people working, right? There's a lot of dual household incomes uh, uh, out there. There's a lot of first-time home buyers who have 
a good enough incomes to still buy homes. So, so we're just dealing with a different type. So the affordability indexes that people keep on using that saw the crash in home sales, it doesn't really imply apples to apples with this group. This is why I've constantly talked about this 4 million level. We just don't have any data. We had a few months after the Great Recession in 2008 where home sales went below here. And, 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 but then even then it started to recover. So what we have seen when mortgage rates go lower, demand does pick up. It happens all the time, 2013, 14, 2018, 19, 2020. We had that V-shaped recovery. And even here, when mortgage rates got down to 5.99%, it gave us one of the biggest monthly home sales prints ever. So again, when rates fall, affordability gets better. More people buy homes. When rates rise, affordability gets worse. Uh, less people buy homes. But that 4 million core has stayed here. And this is one of the things I talked about in 2020, right? You know, how rare it is for us as a country to get below 4 million. This, In this case, this is purely demand. This is not a global pandemic. Uh, and hopefully that answers that question because I always think that's a really good question that I get asked a lot. And this kind of explains that the affordability of this group is just much different than the marginal home buyer that got hit last year. You know, um, this week I got to talk to Selma Hep at uh, CoreLogic, good friend of yours and um, another economist that uh, we love to talk to her. And she brought up something that really reminded me how often you and I used to talk about demographics driving so much of the housing market because she she brought up there are 15 million millennials and you know we've got that that peak home buying age going right now so you know where are we in your you 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 mapped out 2020 to 2024 as being this very very unique period in housing because of that demographic you know that huge wave coming up where are we with that so for those that might not know me in the previous decade, the last cycle I have always said, we're going to have the weakest housing recovery ever. This means mortgage demand, new home sales, housing starts. Our household formations were too young. We had a lot of people ages 16 to 29, and we had a lot of people ages you know, 55 to 64. But as our household formation grows, years 2020 to 2024 has this once in a lifetime, the biggest age group ever recorded in history, ages 28 to 35, just to make it simple. We get a little bit of bump there, and that means you get a little bit more demand. I'm not a housing credit boom person, but you, it's just simple, simple demographics. This was the one time in history that this was going to happen. So what occurred was demographics kicked in right in 2020. Nothing abnormal about that. Home sales were breaking out before COVID-19 hit us. But what, what happened is that home prices grew so much so fast that the affordability metrics broke. That's why I have that 23% home price growth model. So the people are still there. This is not like a Logan's Run movie where they they die at age you know, 23, 32. Was it 23 or 32? I think it was- I thought it was 30. I haven't I think seen that movie. I, the book is like 21 or something. The book's brutal, man. They just, they just, they just, you're, you're done after 21 or something. Um, in this case, they're still there. But when we think about housing demand in general, this is another thing I'm about to explain. When you think of total housing demand, you can't just think of first-time home buyers. You have to think of move-up buyers, move-down buyers, cash buyers, investors, first-time home buyers. You got to put them all together. Uh, and there's the uh, housing uh, uh, buyer profile. And in this case, because millennials were the biggest home buyers for years, but they also financed their homes. So when mortgage rates shot up, guess who got hit? The millennials, they got hit. Guess who didn't get hit as much? The baby boomers, because they don't finance their homes as much. Uh, Gen X technically is the biggest uh, percentage home buyer, but nobody cares. 
by them. So uh, in this case, it's always the millennials versus boomers. So for the first time, the boomers pass them because they don't finance their homes as much. So they're still there, right? When rates fall, whatever they do, uh, uh, you still have that demographic demand. So it, it didn't get wiped out. Affordability was the issue this time. It wasn't demographics. Where last time, population growth for prime age labor force kind of peaked in 2007. We saw a little decline. Even if there was no credit bubble boom in housing, the economy was going to slow down. Here, we just have very good, solid demographics. And hopefully everyone can understand this. We had COVID-19, COVID-19 recovery. We had inflation. We had the biggest rate hikes. We're still expanding, right? The U.S. is... Uh, power is really its core demographics. More, We have more millennials and Gen Z than the total population in Japan. Household balance sheets are good. These are all foundations of the COVID-19 recovery model. If anybody wants to read that, April 7th, 2020. Thank you, Sarah Wheeler, for allowing me to print that because you people thought I was crazy back then, which is partly true. Um, but here, they're not gone. They're there. So affordability is the one that is the big culprit here, not demographics or not credit. Credit is still flowing um, uh, where there's some areas that are very stressed right now, especially in the jumbo market. But in general, Freddie and Fannie aren't publicly traded companies, so they're allowing the credit markets to uh, still function to a degree. Wow, we covered a lot of ground today from the Fed all the way to uh, purchase apps and also demographics. So Logan, thank you so much. I know we'll be looking for the housing market tracker this weekend. Um, when you give us a glimpse on Saturday on social of what the inventory is, and then we write it, you write it on uh, Sunday, we publish it. Yeah. yeah and, and it was, it was, it was good. You know, it's so bad. It, I, I was hoping for 11 to 17,000 weekly active listings growth, just like, okay, that'd be great. I'd love it. I mean, we haven't had anything like that lately. So we had almost 9,000, which I'm like, good, that's great. I mean, that's really not that much. Uh, uh, but at this point, I'll take anything because new listings data is trending at all-time low still. So any active listing growth is a positive. And I'm, I've am i I've lowered my standards, <laughs> Sarah, that you know I, I'll take near 9,000 uh, weekly active listings growth at this point, because this year has just been a very slow rise of inventory, the zombie. Uh, um, and uh, this is literally one of the, one of the reasons why uh, active listings is negative year over year. Oh my gosh. Fingers crossed. Both, both hands, fingers crossed. For this By the way, another year. thing that doesn't happen during the housing bubble crash is active listings is down year over year and new home sales are up 23.8% year over year. Stock traders stay to stocks. This is housing is not your thing. Okay. Revert to the mean, revert to the mean, revert to the mean. No. As a, as a chart guy telling another chart guy, let that go. Okay. Some of you had a really bad take and you're not, you're doubling and tripling down and it's almost August, right? So let it go. Just move on. Move on. We will do it. Thank you, Logan. We'll talk to you again in a couple of days. Pleasure. Listeners, I am on today. I want to bring you a little special segment that I'm recording with Brenda Nath, our director of events at HW Media. Oh, I'm excited to be here and talk about this. So we are here to talk about Housing Wire Annual, a really special event that we actually launched like during COVID as a virtual event. And the last three years have brought it to the main stage as an in-person event meant to bring together executives and leaders across the housing, finance, mortgage, and real estate sector. Brenna, does that sound about right to you? 
That sounds about right. Um, I know we've used the tagline, all things housing over the years, and it just continues to stay true as we bring together um, leaders that we connect with throughout the year into one space to connect, to strategize, to, and I know it's, I mean, we've been using this word a lot, but it's almost like I'd like to create authentic moments is my new word of choice to describe these impactful moments, like authentic moments that you can take back with you. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, one reason we're recording this segment, Brenna, is I think we've ha- heard some questions in the industry of like, who's this event for? What What's it about? Like, what, what are the goals? What is, uh, what do I get out of it? And I want to bring some of that information to light for our audience. And like, I want to start with the fact of sharing that Housing Wire Annual is Housing Wire's mortgage finance event. And we invite leaders from across the housing ecosystem. So we want leaders from mortgage origination and servicing and capital markets, but we also bring in leaders from real estate who are partnering with mortgage lenders to finance the sale of homes or potentially even leading their own JVs or affiliate agreements inside of their real estate brokerages, as well as title valuation and technology partners who are enabling an effective and efficient mortgage ecosystem. So like this is our mortgage event, the content, the sessions, they are built around mortgage finance and the housing market information that leaders need to make decisions in their businesses. I'm just jumping off of probably this is a great time for this, uh, our chat, because I think I got off 10 plus planning calls this week already. Um, And two things that continuously came up on these conversations is wanting to know what everyone else is doing to make sure that, you know, getting a pulse on the industry uh, from whether how they're using technology, how are they diving into their partnerships? How are they partnering with home builders? How are they getting the door with real estate agents? There's a lot of um, discussions on those things. And then we're bringing those people together. So as, you know, Clayton just said, I'll I created a long bullet point list here. I'll only name a few of them, but you have people like Frank Martel, CEO of Lone Depot, Amory Wooden, who's the CMO of Anywhere Brands, Baron Silverstein, the president over at New Res, uh, the CEO at Thrive Mortgage. And I'm, now I'll just go to names. So CEO Princeton, CMO of CoreLogic, CSO of New FM Lending, just really good names that are going to be able to address those burning questions. Yeah. And so this isn't an event where we get on stage and, and talk about the problems. It's an event where we get on stage and talk about the tactics and strategies that are working. Our speakers are tasked and guided and coached to bring their true expertise to the stage and give us a glimpse into what is working and in some scenarios, what is not working in their businesses. So we have a full expectation that the folks that invest their time and money to attend Housing Wire Annual, which is on October 10th through 12th in Austin, Texas, that they leave the event not just with a few ideas. I've heard that like phrase a hundred times. We just want you to leave with one actionable idea. No, we want you to leave with a viewpoint of how you formulate your strategy to make your mortgage origination business more successful, to make your servicing operations more efficient and to help access liquidity through your capital market solutions. And if you're a real estate professional, we want you to understand how creative, effective mortgage partnerships or business lines will help your agents and partners sell more homes. And uh, that's what this is all about. If the mortgage industry, if the real estate industry operates as efficiently as possible, we will help put more consumers in homes and we will get through this market that 
has just been kind of starved for inventory and 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 kind of got a whiplash from incredibly fast changes in the rate environment. And we're not going to go on stage and just talk about those challenging dynamics. We're going to bring solutions and share with you what the leaders are actually doing to win market share. And Brenna, I, I have a feeling the topic of market share has come up on more than a few of your pre-calls as you've worked with our speakers to get ready for this incredible event. We have you know, the top purchase originator coming to the event and a theme with him and a couple others is um, we use the word growth a lot, but uh, it's almost there is a market share out there to take. And if you go out there and look for the business, it's there. There's a reason that it's a mindset. It's how they're structuring their day. It's how they're building their strategy that's creating this almost winning battlefield mindset for growth. And that's what I'm continuously hearing across the board from the leaders that we're talking to. Yeah, so we're bringing mindset into professional content. It's not going to be the raw, raw mindset stuff, but it is going to be where lender, lending leaders and real estate leaders need to focus their energy and you know put on the blinders to focus on uh, on what's necessary for success instead of stressing about what's going wrong and and where you're seeing headwinds. On top of that, so this is the content. Let's talk about community. Who do you expect to see at this event, and what do they get out of being at Housing Wire Annual? The wording I've been using is your your rising star and higher and the people who aspire to like be and have those titles. So, you know, the marketing leaders, the finance leaders, the women of influence in the space, the vanguards, all of those who are, you know, coming together into one room. And then the action item, I know Clayton just said we uh everyone's talking about that one action item, but something I would say that a lot of these leaders are talking about is when you're in the room with each other, it's actually connecting with them connecting with them on LinkedIn, creating a game plan when you go to these events and saying, these are the five leaders that I want to connect with because we're creating this space for you. And then it's on you to take all the names that are in there and say, this is how I'm going to build um, connections and relationships from here. So that's kind of the people we're going for along with you know a lot of the team members of these leaders at the event. Can I share with you a little story? So I was, um, I was at Neil Dingra's forward event recently in Las Vegas. And I was speaking with Arjun Dingra, um, Neil, Neil's brother, and like they do some incredible content and some like, just like building really great origination businesses. And Arjun was talking about the difference between forward and what we do at HWA. And I loved what he said about HWA. So this is the event that your boss attends. Like if you want to spend time with the CEO of your mortgage origination business, if you want to better understand the rest of the loan ecosystem outside of like what happens after a loan's originated, like this is the place to be. And uh, that's what I'm building for, Brenna. I want this to be the event where the CEOs of independent mortgage banks and the leaders of mortgage businesses inside of depositories and the leaders of secondary and servicing desks come to build business strategies, build partnerships and help the industry build a more efficient mortgage ecosystem. Um, last year has been tough. We are all going to get better and we're going to get better together. And I'm I'm personally excited about spending time with the leaders that are actually gaining market share. Like I ain't got time to spend time with the folks that are uh, washing out and not going to win in this market. Like we are inviting the people that are going to win. We want you to join us at Housing Wire Annual this year, October 10th or 12th in Austin, Texas at the Hyatt Lost Pines Resort. So Clayton and I were chatting right before we jumped on this. I asked Clayton if he'd be open to receiving as many DMs as possible. He has some special discount pricing for you guys. So feel free to reach out to him. I'm on Instagram at housing Clayton. If you DM me and you want to attend HWA, we will send you a special podcast promo code to join us. 
Or you can send me a message on LinkedIn, Clayton Collins, CEO at HW Media. I think most of you know where to find me. And we're going to do some special stuff at this event, and I want you to be part of it. Now, I know we covered a lot of information here. If you want to dig in deeper to how to register, who are the other speakers, what are the networking opportunities that we built, um, Pickleball is one of those. You can go to housingwireannual.com. Um, it will give you all the information there. And then once again, it's just from October the 10th through the 12th in Austin, Texas at the Hyatt Lost Pine. So reserve your spot now. And also just thank you, Clayton, for letting me come on here and talk about it. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.